Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I'm a bit torn about how to approach the message today. Uh, this passage, it, it's the sort of passage that most of us wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on it. And even, I know that even me, as I've read it in the past, I've often just read over it pretty quickly. And, oh, yeah, there's just a couple of paragraphs there describing the comings and goings and a little bit of personal stuff. Not much to see here. Let's move on. But as I read it more deeply and as I prayed and as I dwelled on God's word, I found myself in a little bit of a dilemma. You see... The reading today gives us an opportunity to speak about those who are being called to ministry. And yes, I know that we're all called to ministry, but you know as well as I do that we're all called to ministry in different ways. And, and as Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus, we realise that these blokes are serving in ministry in a way that we would often associate with being a missionary or a minister or a pastor or a leader of a church. And I believe that there are those who are listening to this today who the Lord is going to challenge and be calling to step up because the Lord is calling you to serve and to minister in a way far greater than you currently are. But that leaves me with a bit of a problem, you see, because now that I've told you this, most of you are probably going to go, oh, Okay, so that's a message for those other people. I don't need to worry about that. And you might be quite tempted to stop paying attention. Um, but please don't stop paying attention because there's some really important stuff here for all of us. So as we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study your word today, we want to begin by surrendering our whole selves to you. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us this day. Speak to us as a church and speak to us individually. And Lord, because you have saved us and because you are Lord, because you call us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and because you call us to obedience, Lord, my answer to you is already, yes, Lord, I will. And so, Lord, as you speak to me today, and as you challenge me today, my answer is yes. 
Even now, before I hear you, my answer is yes. Yes, I will go where you call me to go. Yes, I will serve as you call me to serve. Yes, I will give up whatever it is you tell me to leave behind. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, speak to me today so that I can obey in Jesus' name. Amen. That sort of prayer is what I call a making it real prayer. God will call each of us to serve him in different ways, but there is one phrase that, that should never be uttered by the lips of a disciple of Jesus, and that phrase is, no, Lord. We are able to say, yes, Lord. We are able to say, help me, Lord. We are able to say no to God, but we cannot say no, Lord. Because if Jesus Christ is truly my Lord, I cannot say no. Because that's what the title Lord means. He is my boss. He is my master. He is the one that I must obey. I cannot say no to him. And that's why I call that sort of prayer a making it real prayer. And because Jesus is my Lord, my answer has to be already yes. And so when we know that the Lord is speaking... Um, and when we know that the Lord is giving us a direction, we don't need to go away and think about it for a day or two or a week or a month or a year because we've already said yes by making him Lord. Right. so we're in a section of the letter which is probably best summed up by Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul said, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then later on in chapter 2 verse 4, he said to the Philippian church, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now today... Paul is giving us some some very personal examples of disciples of Jesus who are doing this very thing. They are living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind. They are striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And they're not just in it for their own interests. They're not just looking out for themselves. They're looking out for the interests of others. And so today we encounter two servants of Jesus. Timothy, who is a long-term partner with Paul in his missionary and ministry work, and Epaphroditus, who himself comes from Philippi, who, which is the place where, where Paul is writing this letter to. And this is the only place here in this letter to the Philippians, it's the only place in the whole of the Bible where Epaphroditus gets a mention. So, The first point I'm going to be making today is ministry is shared. When we first started off Bush Disciples, um, essentially we were planting a church. Actually, we were planting a whole bunch of little churches all over the place. Now, if you look at, at most church planting models that most people like to run by, it sort of follows a bit of a business plan. 
right? So you have a whole process. So you, so you identify a place, usually a place with a large population, um, and usually, well, often a place with lots of professional type people because generally professional type people um, have a lot to offer in the church. Um, no no offence to those of us who are not professionals. Um, it's just they have certain skills and abilities that, that, that can be used with, within a church. Um, and then the next thing to do is is you gather a team about you, uh, people who can do stuff, musicians and leaders and, and, and people gifted in kids' ministry and youth ministry and whatnot. And um, then you organise some financial support to help get you started and away you go and you start and you start you plant your church. And that's why church planting has become really popular, or mostly it happens in cities or in the coastal fringe. Um, and by the way, people's ideas of coastal fringe is different. You know, for, for me, I might think of it as probably 100, 150 kilometres from the coast. Um, why, why is that so? Well, because those are the places where there's lots of people. Those are the places where there's lots of money. Those are the places where there's generally more pro- professional type folk. And um, not to mention that it's always nice to plant a church where there's a pleasant place to live. And so why wouldn't people want to live near the coast? But when we started off Bush Disciples, we didn't do any of that. Uh, If we did, well, Bush Disciples probably never would have gotten started. I mean, who goes and plants a whole bunch of churches out in the bush where there's the population base is minute? And who does this without trying to line up funding and who does it without having a team, a whole team to, to take from another existing church to, to plonk down and you've already got your core group? Who does that? Well, I guess that's what we did. And the thing is, if we, if we didn't make a start and if we were following the church planning model, we probably never would have gotten going. And so we made a start. But God intends ministry to be shared. And over the years, God has put it on people's hearts and, and a team has begun to gather. People who can play musical instruments and people who can teach and, and people who can support us financially and people who are good with kids. Uh, ministry is meant to be shared. And even though when we first started off, we didn't have any of this, God has been able to bring people as we've needed them for, for the stage of ministry that we're at. And... It's really been wonderful um, over the last few months uh, because ministry has been getting shared in a whole new way with the folk at Bonjean. We've got people at Bonjean leading most of the service today, and and this is great. And a number of people have commented on this, people from Bonjean, people from St George, uh, even people from Richmond of all places on the outskirts of Sydney have commented on how good it is to get to know some of these other people who are involved in the churches. Do you know what's been happening? Ministry is being shared. But even so, I do have to confess that that as a pastor in a little country church, I sometimes get just a little bit jealous of, of the multitudes of people that the big churches in the city have to draw on. But even so, God in his own way provides who we need when we need them to carry out the mission that he's given us. And as the ministry of Bush Disciples changes and grows, 
um, I have every confidence that the Lord will continue to provide who we need. Right. So ministry is meant to be shared. And Timothy is somebody who shared in ministry with Paul. Timothy was someone who Paul knew that he could rely on and, and that he could send them out as his representative to other churches when, when Paul wasn't able to get there himself. Now, there's various reasons that Paul couldn't get to visit the other churches that he wanted to visit. It's pretty obvious why he can't now. He's, he's in prison, and I don't think they would give him furlough to go and, uh, to go and speak to, an, to a church. I mean, that's the reason they put him in jail in the first place. They don't like him planning churches. Um, but there are other times where... where where Paul was needed in one spot, but he was also needed in another, so he would send Timothy to go and and, um, do things on his behalf. And this is how Paul describes Timothy. I have no one like him. He knows that, that, that Timothy genuinely cares for the people in the other churches. And in this case, he's specifically talking about the church in Philippi. He genuinely cares for them. Timothy has proven his worth. He's been a faithful worker. And Paul and Timothy have worked together as a team. Paul, the older one, Timothy, the younger one. And Paul says it's like we're a father and son team working together. Anyway, Paul is really wanting to send Timothy to the church in Philippi so that he can check on them and spend a bit of time with them and, and then be able to bring word back to Paul about how they're going. But sadly, Paul just couldn't do that at the moment. And I think we see here a a difficult dilemma that many pastors in churches, or actually many churches themselves, have. It's to know when to hold on to someone because they are so valuable in the church and they are so needed in the church, and when it's right to release them so that they can go and do ministry elsewhere. That's a really tough call. And at times, Paul would send Timothy out, but he just couldn't do that at this point. Do you know why? Because Timothy is the only one. He was the only one who genuinely cared for the other churches, and he's probably the only one that Paul could rely on. You see, it seems like that the local church where Paul was wasn't in very good shape. Uh, We're not 100% sure exactly where Paul is when he wrote this. We know that he is in prison, but we don't know which one. Um, He'd been in prison numerous times. Uh, Traditionally, it's been understood that uh, he was in in prison in Rome. And yes, this is the most likely, but it's not for certain. He may have been in prison somewhere else, perhaps Ephesus. But regardless of his location, the local church where he was wasn't in very good shape. He'd already talked about how some people there were preaching the gospel out of rivalry, you know, hoping, it to, hoping to rub it into Paul a little bit. You know, who does that? What kind of a church is this that they, they preach out of rivalry? Oh, look at you, Paul, you're stuck in jail. Well, see, we're out here and we can still be preaching the gospel and we can preach too and look, we're getting converts. No, 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 no. Who does that? And... and Paul says that there is no one else there. There's no one else that he can depend upon. No one else who cared about Philippi. They only cared about their own little patch. And that's the way it is with a lot of churches. 
And every church, our church, is in danger of this, that we only care about our own little patch, our own little church. And um, we just put all of our efforts into into our own patch and we don't care about the wider church or the wider calling of mission. But this goes, I think this is actually going further than this. I think he's actually talking more personally at this point than, than, than as a church. It's not just that that church only cares about their own little patch. Um, he says here, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Right? He's talking about individuals here, people who are supposed to be disciples of Jesus in the church, but they only care about their own interests instead of the interests of Jesus. And that's why there was no one for, for Paul to send. I fear that it's way too easy for us to fall into the rut of being a people who only care about our own interests rather than caring about the interests of Jesus Christ. And when that happens in a church, well, a church doesn't have the manpower that it needs. It's like if a church is a body, then that body might have one arm and one leg and no toes because much of the body is missing in action. How much of a use is that body? Somebody once said, many churches are like a football game. A few people out on the field in desperate need of a rest and a heap of people in the grandstands in desperate need of some exercise. And verse 21 hits hard. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What a terrible indictment on a church. And it forces us to ask the question of ourselves, who am I living for? Seriously. What's my priorities? When it comes to serving, who do I serve the most? Am I serving Jesus or am I more self-serving? Am I seeking to pursue the Lord's commission or am I seeking to fulfil my own ambition? And when it comes to time, do I even have enough time to serve Jesus? Or have I filled up my calendar so full with, with everything else that represents my own interests that I don't have any time left on the calendar to, to slot Jesus in and serving him? And for some of us today, the Lord may be calling us. He may be saying to you, and he's challenging us to sacrifice our own interests and to begin to prioritise the interests of Jesus Christ. And for some of you, the Lord might be calling you to become like Timothy, to be someone who's available, to be someone who's trustworthy, to be someone who's able to be sent out on mission, to go and visit churches who need encouragement and to encourage them in the faith and to preach and teach. He may be calling you to support another pastor because that's what young Timothy was doing. He'd left everything to go and support Paul. But the thing is, as a church... We might be stifling the call of a Timothy. We might have somebody in our very midst who, who, who God is calling to go and be a Timothy. But we feel that we need that person more in our church and so we can't let them go. 
Let's not be a church who stifles the call of the Timothy because we've got our own interests at heart instead of the interests of Jesus. Let's start caring less about our own interests and let's step up to care more about the interests of Jesus Christ. Let's move on. The second example is Epaphroditus. What do we know about Epaphroditus, apart from having a strange name? Well, the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul who was in jail. Isn't that lovely? Paul was in jail. Paul was in need. And they had to pretty much supply their own uh, daily living stuff while they were in jail, apparently. And so they sent Epaphroditus with a gift to help meet those needs that Paul had. But Epaphroditus became desperately sick. In fact, he almost died. He was at death's door. But God had mercy on him and he lived. Anyway, Paul's decided that he's going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Even though Philippi have sent him to Paul to to be with him and, and to support him, Paul thinks it's time to send him back to Philippi. And the reason for this is is because, well, Epaphroditus is anxious because he knows that, that the people in Philippi heard that he is crook and they're probably assuming he might have died. Um, but He's just really anxious. He wants to get back and let them know that they're okay, that he's okay. And Paul also is starting to feel anxious because he can see the anxiety in Epaphroditus. And um, so he's sending him back for that. And, of course, this is an opportunity for Epaphroditus to carry the letter that Paul is now writing. But more importantly than any of this is, is how does Paul describe Epaphroditus? Well, he describes him as my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, your minister to my, to my need. Now, that's a pretty good reference. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of disciples of Jesus who, who don't only look out for their own interests. They were wanting to serve the interests of Jesus Christ. And they saw a need that Paul had and they partnered with Paul in his ministry. In, in, and it was, it was a partnership that cost them greatly. Epaphroditus almost died. That was the cost of him leaving his home and, and presumably leaving his job to go and minister to Paul's need. You see, even Paul, one of the greatest apostles, he couldn't do it alone. He needed partners in ministry. And so he calls Epaphroditus my brother. I don't know if you know or not, but ministry can be really lonely. You might think, oh, how can that be, Michael? You're, you're with people all the time. Well, not as much as you might think. It can be really lonely. But when ministry is shared... Wow, what a blessing that is. Now, there's people in various places all over Australia and actually even all over the world uh, who are listening to this message. And so I realise that I'm not only talking to my own local congregation. And so um, now that you realise that too, it's, it, it makes me able to say some stuff that hopefully it won't offend anybody because you'll just assume that I'm talking to somebody else now. Okay, so... Um, 
I want to say this. I want to encourage you, whoever you are, to encourage your pastor or your minister, wherever you wherever you might be. Please don't let them think that they're in this alone. Be a brother or a sister to your pastor. Sadly, sometimes in ministry, uh, ministry gets seen as a profession. And so sometimes in a church, the pastor is seen as the professional rather than as the brother or the sister in Christ. And, and I want to encourage you to be a brother, to be a sister to your pastor. Walk with him as you would walk with any other Christian as you follow Jesus Christ together and share his burdens. We sometimes expect the pastor to share the burdens of others, but share your pastor's burdens and his family's burdens. And be a fellow worker with your pastor. Who, who does the work in your church? The three common situations that can arise within a church. The first is where the minister or the pastor is seen as the employee, where the minister is paid to get stuff done. Now, in some cases, that is quite a formal expectation. They might actually have everything written down in a, in a job description. You've got to do this, 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 this and this, and, um, and we'll sit there and lap it all up. So in some cases, it is a formal expectation. In other cases, it just happens by default. Because when there's work that needs to be done... Nobody volunteers. Or when people are asked, the most common answer is, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a bit busy this week. Yeah, I'm busy next week too. Well, actually, I'm going to be busy for the next two months. Um, and often it, it's quicker for the pastor just to end up doing stuff for himself rather than trying to ring half a dozen different people to, to get somebody to agree to do it. So that's, that's, that's one situation. The second situation that can be found within a church is pretty much the exact opposite of that. It's where the minister or the pastor is seen as the CEO or the manager of the church, or, or perhaps that might just be the way the pastor likes to see himself. But, but in a situation like this, you, you often find that the pastor or the minister will just have a few special pet jobs that he, that he likes to do and he keeps them for himself, and the rest of the time, um, well, he just directs other people to do stuff and, and they've got, in fact, he might have other managers. So you, you organise that, you organise that, you organise that and who knows what he does. But that's, that's harsh. I shouldn't have said that. But, but the third situation is the way that I believe it's supposed to be. When I first graduated from Bible college and, and arrived at my first placement as a minister, I went into a church that hadn't had a minister for a number of years. They'd had temporary people come in at times, but, but they'd been without a full-time minister for, for a number of years. And I'm not sure if it was the first worship service, but it was one of the first worship services. One of the th leaders got up and, and gave an analogy of the church as a ship. And he said, we've been like a ship without a captain for, for years now, but now we've got a captain to give, to give us some direction. And when I got up, I, I said, look, I'd rather see it this way. The ship's captain is God. I'm not your captain. You haven't been without a captain. You've had a captain the whole time because God has been with you, leading you and directing you. 
I like to see myself as the ship's cook. As part of the crew, my job is to keep the crew fed. You see, in the church, we're supposed to be fellow workers. All of us working together for the glory of God. Right? So Epaphroditus was a fellow brother and he was a fellow worker and he is also a fellow soldier. Ooh, it's not very politically correct these days to, to be using military terminology in a church. Uh, in fact, some, some preachers are pacifists and they are so dead against all things military that they remove all military terminology from their vocabulary. They just find it abhorrent. But as disciples of Jesus, I want to make sure you realise this. We are in a war. There is a battle between good and evil, a battle between darkness and light, a battle between the Lord God Almighty and, and, and his holy angels and against Satan and his evil demons. And as such, military terminology is entirely appropriate. We are soldiers. And yes, the safest place for a soldier might be well away from the battlefront. And that's the default position of a lot of Christians. We, we just want to stay in our own little holy huddle and, and we don't want to risk going out and ever taking part in the active advancement of the gospel. But Paul sees himself and Epaphroditus as fellow soldiers. As disciples of Jesus... We have our marching orders. Take the life-giving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out into the world. But are we obeying those marching orders? You see, if Jesus is our commanding officer, actually he's more than that, he, he's actually our commander-in-chief, uh, but if Jesus is our commanding officer, our commanding in, commander-in-chief, we must be obeying his orders. Now, I want you to note here, Paul, even as an apostle, he's not the commanding officer. Even the great apostle Paul is a fellow soldier. And so why would we ever see our, our pastors or our ministers as a commanding officers? They're not. So please don't ever see your pastor as the commanding officer. And don't see him as the master strategist either. He's not. View him as your fellow soldier. View me as your fellow soldier. And more importantly, you be a fellow soldier with your pastor or minister. Be there, right in the thick of the spiritual battle. Be there right there in the thick of, of the advance of the gospel, taking the gospel out into places where it isn't our safe little holy huddle. Be there with your pastor in that and have his back as he has yours. So that's what Epaphroditus was to Paul. But what was he to his home church in Philippi? Well, he was their messenger and their minister to Paul's need. Messengers and ministers are sent out by a church. 
a local church, identify amongst its members those whom God is calling to be messengers and ministers. And they send them out. But they don't send them out to go it alone. They don't send them out to go and be a lone ranger. They send them out to be boots on the ground, as it were, and to minister on behalf of that church in the name of Jesus. And no matter whether our church is a big church or whether it's a small church, don't you think that it's rather important that we be ready to send out those who are like Timothy and that we would send out those who are like Epaphroditus and that we would support them as they serve in ministry in the name of Jesus. We all have a role in this. We won't all get sent out as ministers like, like Timothy and Epaphroditus did. But in verse 29, Paul tells us that we should honour such people. If the Lord is calling you to be someone who is sent, if he's calling you to, to be a messenger or to be a minister, are you ready to go? Are you willing to go? All right, are you at least willing to be willing to go? And what about the rest of us? Are we willing to send them? Are we willing to honour them and support them? And are we willing to, to, to increase our activity in, in, in local ministry ourselves so that we can free these other people up so that they can go? I pray that we are. I don't want us to ever become a church like that spot where, where, where Paul is. I want us to be a church like that church in Philippi who are able to send. Let's pray. Lord, we prayed at the beginning, the answer is yes. When we hear your call to go in your name, the answer is yes, Lord, I will. When we see others answer the call to go in your name, the answer is yes, Lord, I will support them to do that. And when we see a need locally, the answer is yes, Lord, I will serve. And so, Lord, now open our eyes and open our ears to your call. Help us in all things to think less of our own interests and to strive for your interests. In Jesus' name. Amen.